person and creature, in the name of the Father, Son, of the Holy Spirit. Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, and that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. There is a very old hymn. I think it goes all the way back to medieval times, which in Latin says, Tota pulchra es Maria. You are all beautiful, Mary. When I was in college, we actually performed this piece. There's different settings of it. And I highly recommend listening to one by a French composer named Maurice Duroufflet, or Duroufflet, who wrote uh, in the 20th century, but he would base his com- compositions on the Gregorian chant. It's a very beautiful setting. And what does this hymn say? What are the lyrics? It says, I'm going to read the Latin first because you guys are all Latin scholars and will understand perfectly. Tota pulchra es Maria, et macula originalis non est in te. Tu gloria Jerusalem, tu Letitia Israel, tu honorificentia populi nostri, tu advocata peccatorum. O Maria, Virgo prudentissima, Mater clementissima, ora pro nobis, intercede pro nobis, ad Dominum Jesum Christum. And then the English. You are all beautiful, Mary, and the original stain of sin is not in you. You are the glory of Jerusalem. You are the joy of Israel. You give honor to our people. You are an advocate of sinners. O Mary, Virgin most prudent, mother most merciful, pray for us, plead for us to the Lord Jesus Christ. This hymn is normally sung in the Vespers of the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, which makes sense because it refers to this original stain of sin that Our Lady is preserved from. She's conceived without original sin. But I thought it was also a fitting way for us to begin our conversation with you, Lord, as we meditate on your mother's assumption, the assumption into heaven, which we will be celebrating on Monday and is a great solemnity of the church. Maybe you'll recall those who have been to Arnold Hall, that the main oratory of that conference center has a beautiful painting, a huge painting, that's a copy of the Velázquez, the Velázquez painting of the Assumption or the Coronation of Our Lady, where we see Mary being raised up to heaven and the Holy Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are surrounding her and she's being crowned 
as the rightful queen of heaven, and the angels are all around her rejoicing. And it's a beautiful image. She looks so beautiful in that painting. Tota pugres, you are all fair, all beautiful. And in fact, on Monday, the opening antiphon for the Mass goes like this. Assumpta es Maria in celum, gaudent angeli. Mary has been taken or assumed to heaven, and the angels rejoice. In this celebration, it's helpful for us to imagine the joy in heaven, right? the joy of the angels, the joy of the saints, as Our Lady is being, in a sense, spoiled by the Holy Trinity. Right? She's being completely regaled, treated with special favor. And we can think, well, why? Why does Our Lady get special treatment? And if there's anything like special treatment, this is like the most extreme. Because y'all recall that death is the separation of the body and the soul. And that each and every human being, from Adam all the way to the last person who has just died, their body remains in the tomb. Their bones decay and are there physically, in a sense, abandoned to the ground. Or they're scattered as ashes in the sea, whatever you want to imagine. But the body is no longer with the soul. And the Christian doctrine is that at the end of time, at the coming of Christ, at the close of the ages, our bodies will rise once more and be reunited to our souls. And we hope, Lord, that, they, that our bodies are rejoicing with you in heaven. But right now, Mary is the only one to have this special privilege. And why? What is the logic of the assumption? So maybe I've told some of you this story before, but there's a priest that I knew when I was in Rome who, uh, his name is Don Pedro, Father Peter, and he was teaching religion class in a school, I think it was a school of the work, where I'm pretty sure this is, these were like third graders or second graders, and he was teaching them about Our Lady and giving them kind of a chat or a talk on the mother of God and who she is and why she's important, right? And she was, he was trying to describe kind of her merits and her role in the, the, the story of redemption. And so after he's kind of been talking for a little bit, he kind of throws out a question to try to evoke their, their interest and get them to respond. And so he says, okay, children, who is the most beautiful mother, the most intelligent, the most loving, the, the awesomest mother of all time, who is the best of all mothers? And so a lot of hands go up all at once, right? And there's one kid in the back who's almost like, you know, pumping the air with his, with his hand, with his fist, right? He really wants to be chosen. 
And so Father Peter points to him, and this kid gets up, and with great solemnity he says, Father Peter's mother, the mother of Father Peter, because he's the one saying this, who is the best mother, the most beautiful, the awesomest, the, the most intelligent. And that's a pretty logical response. We all kind of brag about our own mother, or most of us do. And it makes sense that we're naturally proud of the mother that we have. And we love her and we want to treat her as well as we can. And this is the logic of the assumption. This is from St. Josemaria. Mary has been taken up to heaven by God in both body and soul, and the angels rejoice. Joy overtakes both angels and men. Why is it that we feel today this intimate delight with our heart brimming over, with our soul full of peace? Because we are celebrating the glorification of our mother, and it's only natural that we, her children, rejoice in a special way upon seeing how the Most Blessed Trinity honors her. We face here a mystery of love. Human reason barely begins to comprehend. Only faith can shed some light on how a creature, we have to remember, Our Lady is just one more person. She's a creature like you and me. She's not a goddess. She's not some special divinity. How a creature can be raised to such great heights, becoming a loving target for the delights of the Trinity. We know this is a divine secret. Yet because our mother is involved, we feel we can understand it more, if we're entitled to speak this way, than other truths of our faith. How would we have acted if we could have chosen our own mother? I'm sure we would have chosen the one that we have, adorning her with every possible grace, with every possible blessing, with every possible gift. Well, that is what Christ did. Being all-powerful, all-wise, love itself, Jesus' power carried out his will. And so that's what the church has always understood. It's fitting that Jesus would want to bless his mother in this special way, bringing her with him to heaven. He could do it. He did it. St. Josemaria makes a similar argument when describing the Eucharist, the miracle of the Eucharist. He says, when loved ones are separated, they try to have some way of, of remaining in touch. And physical separation is, is so hard. When our loved ones are taken away from us, for example, through death, but also, I don't know, when they're living in another country, right? when space and time separate, Loved ones, they try to have some way of remembering each other, like a memento, a photo. Maybe it's like a piece of jewelry of our, of our mother, grandmother that has passed. We always try to find some way to cherish their love, cherish their presence, even though they're physically gone. Jesus has wanted to remain with us in the Eucharist, and then we can say his, 
his power has carried out his love, his will. He remains with us in the Eucharist, truly present, really present, in an incredible way, Lord. How fitting the Eucharist is, how fitting the Assumption is. You know, the Assumption is a pretty recent doctrine. It was defined really in the last 150 years. But it's something that Christians have always understood. Christians have always celebrated. I'm going to read here a little history of this feast day. While the feast day is a relatively new one, the history of the, of the holiday and the mystery behind it has its roots in the earliest centuries of Christian belief. The Catholic Church has always taught that when Mary ended her earthly life, God assumed her body and soul into heaven. The dogma of the Assumption of Mary, also called the Dormition of Mary in the Eastern churches, has its roots in the early centuries of the church. When a site, while a site outside of Jerusalem was recognized as Mary's tomb, the earliest Christians always maintained that no one was there, that the tomb was simply empty. According to St. John of Damasus, the Roman Emperor Marcion requested the body of Mary, Mother of God, at the Council of Chalcedon in 451. The Emperor wanted, wanted Mary's remains to be brought. And the Bishop of Jerusalem at the time told the Emperor, Mary died in the presence of all the Apostles, but her tomb, when opened upon the request of St. Thomas, was found empty wherefrom the apostles concluded that the body had been assumed into heaven. And so this belief in the assumption of Our Lady was widely, is a widely held tradition and was never really questioned. In fact, there was always the liturgy of the assumption. It was only in recent times that the Pope felt it necessary to define it as a dogma. He did this in 1950, so not even 100 years ago. And so that's the question, where is Mary's body now? Where is Mary's body? If it's not in the tomb, where is it? And we, with faith, respond as the church has always responded. We say, Mary's body is where ours will be at the end of time. She's a foretaste of heaven, and not only a foretaste of heaven, but a foretaste of the eschaton, of the final, in a sense, resolution of the world. She is no disembodied spirit, but rather a complete human person in heaven, body and soul united, reigning with Christ. And so she beckons us towards heaven. She shows us the way. She is the forerunner of faith. She is the forerunner of the resurrection of the body. And that's a huge motivation for our faith and also for our struggle. Mary, it's worthwhile. You help us to see that it's worthwhile to be faithful. It's worthwhile to struggle because we want to be where you are. We want to experience that same happiness that you have. 
It's like she's saying, where I am, you can be too. We also know that because she reigns with her son, she is with, with her son, body and soul, she's the most powerful intercessor that we have. All of the saints are intercessors. Anyone in heaven, even those who are not beatified or canonized, holy people that we know, we can turn to in prayer and ask for their help. Because if they're in heaven, then they can intercede on our behalf. They stand before God. They offer prayers on our behalf. Well, Mary is obviously the champion in this respect. She who is closest to her son, she who has the special privilege of being assumed bodily into heaven, what a powerful intercessor we have. Maybe you've heard, or probably you haven't, of a, a Dominican from the 15th century. His name is uh, Blessed Alano de la Roche. So not the most famous Dominican out there. Thomas Aquinas is much more famous. But this guy was living in the 1400s in Belgium. And he was one of the first kind of big promoters of the rosary. The Dominicans have always promoted the rosary, but he was especially fervent in spreading this devotion. Well, this happens to us too. Like we may be very pro-rosary, very pro-mass and all the rest, but we also struggle. We have our temptations, we have our falls, right? Well, blessed Alano, at some point in his life, had a very strong temptation. Doesn't say whether it was against purity or something else, but he's very strongly tempted and he almost kind of like has this major fall, okay? Until Our Lady appears to him. And it wasn't like this, sometimes we think of apparitions of Our Lady as very pleasant, where she's there smiling, and maybe she smells like roses, right? Well, when she appears to Blessed Alano de la Roche, she slaps him across the face, right? Just like an angry mother would do. And she goes, bah! And she says, why didn't you ask me for help? If you had turned to me, I would not have let that happen to you. Why didn't you ask me for help? My son, what's wrong with you? And why didn't you ask me for help? It's a very motherly plea. And I think we can imagine our own mothers doing this to us, maybe not slapping us, but becoming upset with us when we don't lean on them more. And so the assumption is like, a, it's a good reminder of the great help that we have in heaven and how Our Lady is so, is so attentive to each of her children, to each one of us. We can even make an apology right now. We can turn to our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament, knowing that next to Jesus is Our Lady, bodily present in heaven. And we can, we can tell Our Lady, I'm sorry. It's sorry that I'm not smarter enough to turn to you in my need. And so often I do fall in temptation. So often I do fall for not being more Marian for not being more reliant 
on you, Mother Mary. St. Josemaria gives us a good example of what it means to be reliant on Our Lady. He had such a strong faith in Our Lady and on her power. There's actually an incident in the history of the work where Opus Dei was under threat. Okay, so in 1951, there was this kind of subtle campaign within the Curia that was looking to kind of dismantle the work. And the way that it was going to happen was basically to take St. Josemaria and pull him out of Opus Dei, like take him out, and then divide Opus Dei into two separate institutions, one for men and one for women. And of course, that would have destroyed the work because the work is, is a single thing. The, the, the unity of the men and women is, is essential to, to our charism. So he doesn't know that that's going to happen, but he, he senses that something is wrong. Okay, so I'm just going to read this from the biography. The founder had to spend the summer of 1951 in Rome to stay on the job, as he put it. This was a real sacrifice. He was exhausted from a heavy workload. Construction work was underway in the house. And Rome's fierce summer heat was oppressive. Actually, Rome is famous for the Ferragosto, which is the month of August in Rome, which is like very humid, very hot. It's unpleasant. To top it all off, there was his diabetes, the sufferings from which were such that he jokingly said he was continually reminded of purgatory. But leaving Rome was out of the question. For some time now, he had been aware of a barely perceptible change in some members of the Curia. One day, he overheard a slightly critical comment. Another day, a cardinal who was an old acquaintance publicly denied ever having had anything to do with him. He suspected that something was happening, but what? Was there a grave threat to the work? The anxiety affected his behavior. He seemed happy and worried at the same time. Always joking, he also constantly asked his children to pray for his intentions. And Carnita Ortega, this is one of the first women of the work, she recalls, as always he turned to prayer and mortification. He passed whole days eating nothing or practically nothing, which made us fear for his health. We also knew he was sleeping very little. And every day he asked more urgently that we pray while the Father's own prayer grew more intense. One day he told us, or he told all the women there in the the headquarters of Opus Dei in Rome, he told us to stop whatever we were doing and go to the oratory for half an hour and force the Lord with our prayer. I think that that was one of the times in our lives when we most put our hearts into asking God to help our Father. One day, that summer of 1951, he was walking in the garden of Villa Tevere, absorbed in thought and making notes in a pocket notebook. One of his sons, Javier Echeverria, came up to him and asked him, Father, how are you doing? ¿Qué tal está? The answer was, filled with peace and holy fortitude, like a lion ready to defend this work of God that the Lord has entrusted to me. Pray and help me. And so basically, in this moment of, of intense need and worry, right, this, this opus day that he had spent so long building up, seeking to correspond to God's will, trying to protect the nature of the work, 
All of a sudden, he sees it under threat. What does he do? He says, not knowing to whom I could turn here on earth, as always, I turned to heaven. He turned to Our Lady. On August 15th, 1951, after a penitential trip, why not admit it? There at Loretto, so Loretto is, is a shrine of Our Lady in Italy, I consecrated Opus Dei to the sweetheart of Mary. Don Alvaro, remembering this, said, they were difficult times. Weighed down by the violent attacks that had arisen along the work's path, St. Josemaria placed all of his confidence in Our Lady. He returned from the trip with peace in his heart, certain that he had left his concerns in good hands. During those trying moments, the Blessed Virgin gave our Father the strength he needed to defend the work. He and, his, and all of his children constantly repeated the words, Cor Maria Dulcissimum, Iter Paratutum, Most Sweet Heart of Mary, prepare a safe path, conserve a safe path. All of this is a wonderful kind of case study in what it means to be Marian, what it means to be reliant on Our Lady, what it means to turn to her in our need. We don't want an apparition like the one that Blessed Alano had, right, where Our Lady has to correct us or chide us for our stupidity. By our trying to confront our problems, confront our challenges, our temptations alone, that's not the way of the Christian. That's not the way, certainly, of the saints, of St. Josemaria. Of course, I just threw Blessed Alano under the bus, but he is blessed, right? So he's clearly a saint who learned the lesson, right? He learned precisely how to shift his attitude and change his, his spiritual habits. Why didn't you ask me for help? Mother Mary, we want to ask you for help. We realize how maternal you are. And we also realize what a gift it is to have you bodily present at your son's side. Our Lady is not a concept. She's not some pure spirit. She is a physical mother who sits at the right hand of, of Jesus, who is enthroned in heaven. She is the queen of heaven. Maybe some of you know there's a priest of Opus Dei in California. His name is Father Jim Kelly. And now he's probably in his 70s. But earlier in his priesthood, he used to live in Rome and worked alongside Don Alvaro, who was the first successor of St. Josemaria at the head of Opus Dei. He's now a blessed himself, blessed Alvaro. Well, as was their custom, you know, he often worked with Don Alvaro one day the custom was at noon they would pray the Angelus, which is a common prayer of the church in honor of Our Lady. And so they're there in an office, and the clock strikes 12, and so they both stand up, and they begin to recite the Angelus. Right? The angel of the Lord declared unto Mary, and she can see by the Holy Spirit, and they start reciting this prayer. Well, but halfway through the prayer, Don Alvaro stops short. Now, maybe, maybe, I don't know why he did this. It could be that maybe 
they were rushing through it or that Father Jim just seemed to be kind of just rattling off the words. He stopped short and he turned to Father Jim and he said, Jim, Our Lady is not an intellectia. She's not like some kind of phantasm or concept of our imagination. She's a person. And then they continued the prayer. Right? They, they finished praying the Angelus. But this impacted Father Jim very much, and I think it would impact us as well to hear that said, especially in the middle of a prayer like that, like a reminder. Do you realize who we're talking to? When we pray the rosary, do we realize who we're speaking with? Is it a personal prayer of a son to his mother? She's not an intellectia, she's a person. She's not some abstract concept. She's as visceral as our own mother. And just as we would like to always be physically close to our mothers, we can't always do that. Jesus has willed into being what he wants. He has Our Lady always by her, his side. What a beautiful thing, and that's what we're going to celebrate on Monday. Let's learn the lesson. Let's learn to turn to Our Lady in our need, just as St. Josemaria did when Opus Dei was under threat, just as the saints have always done. And we ask her that we might make the most of this feast day on Monday. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations that you've communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help in putting them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.